Welcome to SLP Money, an in-depth conversation for speech language pathologists and private practice owners on how to break through to the next level of your career and business. Join your host, Craig Goldslager, a financial advisor and certified exit planner, as he shares strategies and stories that will help you become more financially confident and better invest your time and money. You can learn more and stay up to date at utterlyfinancial.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of SLP Money. Today, we'll be talking about a topic called exit planning and why every private practice center needs to have an exit plan. And even if you're not a private practice owner, if you replace the word exit plan with retirement plan, I believe a lot of the topics and conversation will resonate well with you because essentially an exit plan is a retirement plan or form of retirement plan for private practice owners. So the conversation will be based off of a presentation that I had the privilege of giving to two associations last year. The first was the American Academy of Private Practice in Speech Pathology and Audiology, or APSPA. And the second was at the National ASHA Convention. And so the presentation I gave was titled, Leaving Your Business is Inevitable. And as the title states, why I feel so strongly that every private practice owner needs to prepare and plan for their exit through an exit plan is because there is a 100% certainty that every business owner will leave their business at some point. Now, that can be voluntarily because they reach retirement age or they execute the transaction to actually sell the business to another person or another entity. But it could also be because of an involuntary sale or liquidation of the business. And that might be because of a fallout if you have another co-owner of your practice. Perhaps the two of you no longer want to operate the business together. It could be because of an illness or incapacitation that no longer affords you the ability to carry out the daily operations of running a private practice. It could be the untimely death of you or a coworker or your most important employees. There's a plethora of reasons as to why individuals might be forced to leave their business. And so the only thing that we know with certainty is that you will leave. So for any event that has a 100% probability, we would like to plan for it because we know it must happen. And so what exit planning boils down to is that it's a process that results in the creation of a strategy allowing you, a private practice owner, to exit your business on your terms and condition. It really serves as a roadmap to allow you to coordinate with all your team of professionals the plan to carry out your goals, your dreams, your desires for exiting your business. And so what we've found is that it can be very challenging for a business owner to try and carry out an exit plan on their own. Some of the reasons why it's challenging is that as I mentioned, if you're facilitating this plan with your team of advisors, you're getting a lot of micro advice from a lot of different sources. So think about all of the different professionals you work with as a business owner. You often most likely work with a business attorney who helped draft your operating agreements and other corporate documents. You have an estate planning attorney for your personal wishes. You work with probably an accountant or an accounting team. You might delegate your insurance billing. Maybe you have a business consultant to help with the operations of your practice and maximize 
the top and bottom lines of your business. You probably have a relationship with a banker at your local credit union or banking institution. So you have all of these different people and professionals who give you advice based on the reasons that they hired you. So they might be giving you individual advice, but how do all of those little pieces of advice roll up into the giant grand plan of leaving your business at some point? And so by hearing perhaps conflicts between some of these advice, or they might not even be advising you on those topics at all. So it can be challenging without having a person sitting at the head of the table with you to help make those decisions. And that's what the role of an exit planner really is. So just as you have an estate planning attorney or a financial advisor or a consultant, an exit planner is someone who will help coordinate and consolidate with you all this information to help really spearhead your dreams and desires for exiting your business. So aside from the micro advice from a lot of different advisors, it's also going to cause a lot of stress and anxiety thinking about exit planning, most likely because this is the first time you will be exiting or selling your practice. And with any first experiences in life, the unknown and uncertainty of events can cause stress. And if we're under stress, we might not be making the best decisions. We might not be performing to the best of our abilities. And so because of the unknown nature of actually exiting and processing the transactions and going through the sale of the business, it can lead towards that anxiety. A third reason why exit planning can be really challenging is that the sale of your private practice will most likely be the largest financial transaction of your life. So are you receiving the fair market value for your private practice? Have you determined what is the fair market value of your business? Do you want to make sure that you're completing a transaction so that you don't get crushed with a tax bill at the end? So if you sell your private practice for a million dollars after transaction fees, taxes, et cetera, you might come out with $400,000 or 40% of the sale price. Was that really executed with the utmost due diligence? And you want to make sure that you execute this correctly because most private practice owners in our experience, this portion of the sale will represent the largest portion of their assets to generate retirement income from. So you want to make sure that you receive what your practice is worth, but also at the end of the day, pay as little amount as tax as possible. So that way you are able to generate retirement income. So the last thing, if you work with a child in the business, perhaps a parent in the business or any family member, really, Family dynamics can always cause strife, especially in a family business. So do you have strategies in place to make sure that all family members are treated equally? Maybe you have a business active child, like I mentioned, if you work with, let's say, your daughter in the private practice, but you have a son who's outside the business and is not a speech pathologist. How do you create equitable value between the two children, one who's in the business and one who's out of the business? So things to consider and reasons why exit planning can be so difficult. So at the start of any exit plan, really what the goal is is to walk through a seven-step process to create an exit plan to, again, carry out your wishes and make sure that you transact and sell your private practice in the manner in which you desire. 
And so what we know step one to be is owner objectives and making sure that your wishes are carried out. So every private practice owner or every business owner, there's three universal exit goals that should be answered at the onset of any exit plan. So the first is, whom do I want to sell my private practice to? And we can categorize the who into two major groups. The first are known as insiders. So an insider is someone whom you have a personal relationship with. Perhaps it's a lead therapist in your private practice or your clinical director. Maybe it's a group of key employees that exist within your practice, or it's your child who works in the private practice, someone whom you have a relationship with already and is most likely working in your private practice. The second major group of who you might want to sell the business to is a third party. So someone who works outside of the business. Perhaps it's a friendly competitor on the other side of town who operates a speech clinic. Maybe it's a physical therapy or an occupational therapy clinic who's looking to create a multidisciplinary operation and wants to have speech become one of the disciplines within their business. It could also be a private equity group. So determining if you want to sell to an insider or a third party, really important to start thinking about some potential people of whom you may want to sell the business to. The second major goal to consider is how much do I need to sell the business for? So as I mentioned earlier, as anyone approaches retirement, the goal of reaching retirement is to be able to produce the same after-tax cash flow that you're used to living on as a private practice owner. And so with that being the case, if you calculate that you need a pool of assets to be worth $2 million and you have $1 million of other assets, maybe in a retirement plan, a brokerage account, some other type of investment account, and we know that if your goal is $2 million and you have other assets worth $1 million, you need to sell your private practice and net $1 million from that transaction to get you to your $2 million goal. And so this ties directly into the third exit goal of when do I need to sell my business? So you might decide or have had an appraisal done of your business that today it's worth $500,000. So if my private practice is worth $500,000, I need to sell it for a net of a million dollars I need to have my business improve its valuation by at least $500,000, most likely more. So what is a reasonable time strategy to increase the valuation of my business to get it to that goal so that way I can achieve my desired cash flow in retirement? So again, the three major exit goals, who do I want to sell the business to? How much do I need to sell it for? And when do I want to sell it? So all of those are quantitative goals, things that we can calculate, things that can be discussed, things that have numerical values. Of equal importance, however, are the qualitative objectives for you, the private practice owner. So for instance, what is the vision for the company without you? And that ties directly into who you sell the business to. If you sell your business to an insider, let's say it's your clinical director, she's most likely going to keep the standard operating procedures the same. She'll keep your staff in place. Most likely the business will continue on as if you were still there. There might not be so many changes overall. If you sell to a third party, it's likely that there will be a lot of changes. They might take your name or the name of your practice off the wall. 
They might implement their own processes and procedures. They may bring in their own clinical director or lead therapists to help with business operations. So it's important to think about what you want your business to look like without you in it. Similarly, what is your vision for you without your company? A lot of times people reach retirement and they haven't given enough consideration to what their daily lives and activities will look like without their business. You've been showing up to the clinic for the last 10, 20, 30 plus years. What will it look like now in retirement? Have you given thought to what you want to do? Do you want to travel? Do you want to visit children or grandchildren? Do you want to continue in the speech pathology world in some capacity, maybe be an adjunct professor at a local university, maybe be a consultant for other clinicians, be a mentor for the community? So you need to, aside from just the quantitative and dollars aspects, really think about what your vision is for you without your company, as well as what the vision for the company is without you. So all of those are quantifying your objectives as the private practice owner. The second step of the exit planning process is to quantify the business and personal financial resources available to you in order to make these decisions. So three general things that we consider in this part of the process is what is my private practice worth? How much annual free cash flow does my private practice have? And how much annual non-business income do I have? So let's take those one by one now. What methodology are you using to determine the valuation of your practice? Maybe you heard that another clinician sold her practice for a million dollars and you're located in the same city and you see a similar population. So you must assume that your business is worth a million dollars also. Or maybe you've heard of general rules of thumb in the industry. Maybe my practice will sell for four times my net income. The problem with generalizations is that every private practice is unique. And so I would ask for you to consider when was the last time you had a fair estimate of value done on your business or even a certified valuation done? Because you may assume and oftentimes we'll see that a business owner thinks their business is worth some amount and oftentimes it's worth half of that amount or less. Other times they're pleasantly surprised when we tell them by getting a fair estimate of value that the private practice they thought was worth $500,000 is really worth over a million dollars. And so until we quantify the aspects and use a true determined methodology for determining the valuation of the business, we really don't know. And we don't want to make random back of the napkin calculations and guesses, again, for something that will represent the largest transaction of your life. Second, how much annual free cash flow does the business have? So as a private practice owner, depending on the tax entity in which you file, you'll have a lot of different options and availabilities to you on how you distribute cash flow from your business. Do you want to reinvest it back into the business? Do you want to take it as an ownership distribution? Do you want to use it to motivate and incentivize your employees? Free cash flow really boils down to it's not free as in it didn't cost anything. Free cash flow is that it's not earmarked for salary expense, operational expense. You have business owner discretion on how to spend that money. So how do you want to spend it? Before you decide how you want to spend it, you need to know how much of it you really have. So the third thing is knowing how much annual non-business income you have. So non-business income, again, with the goal of reaching retirement and having the same net after-tax cash flow coming into your checking account every month, Maybe you have rental income somewhere else. Maybe you have a retirement plan that will be able to generate income for you by reinvesting those assets. 
So quantifying how much you actually have available to you and then coordinating all of these three categories of financial resources to know what you will be able to generate from a retirement income perspective. Once you quantify the business and personal financial resources, you need to move to step three, which is focusing on the actual business value. So regardless of whether you know what your business is worth today exactly, it's oftentimes what we encounter is your business most likely is not what you need it to be worth in order to retire. So you're going to have to grow the value and maximize the value. And so there are a couple ways in which you can do that. The first is to increase the transferable value of your practice. And so especially if you are a smaller size private practice, maybe you have five to 10 employees, the way we define transferable value is it really comes down to measuring how well your business runs without you in it. Because anyone looking to purchase your practice, whether it's an insider or a third party, is purchasing the business for the future cash flow that's coming through the business. So if you're wearing many hats as the private practice owner, maybe you serve as the clinical director, maybe you're still seeing a caseload, maybe you're the marketing director, you're doing the insurance billing. If you're doing all these different things, that means that someone who purchases your practice is either they're going to have to assume all of those responsibilities or they're going to have to hire others in order to carry out those operations. So if they're going to have to do that, hiring people costs money, it is an expense, and so that will drag down the value at which they want to purchase your practice. So by starting this exit planning process earlier than most likely you anticipate, you'll be able to start pulling yourself out of the day-to-day operations. Maybe you show up to the clinic four days a week instead of five, or maybe you start delegating certain tasks. Like I mentioned, maybe you hire an insurance billing company if you process all the insurance yourself. So the way to grow transferable value is through improving the value drivers that exist within your business. And a value driver is something that either reduces the risk of your business or enhances revenue growth. So as an example, for every speech pathology private practice that we meet, there's usually five or six different value drivers that we can assess and really look at in order to determine whether or not they can improve the business value. So the first is, does your practice have stable and increasing cash flow? Anyone who will look to purchase a business will want to buy a business that is continuing to increase in cash flow. So is your caseload growing every year? Is your top line revenues increasing? Is your bottom line net income increasing? What are you doing in order to maximize the cash flow and improve the cash flow of your business? That leads into a second value driver of having a diversified customer base. So one way to improve the cash flow is to diversify into different categories of speech. Maybe it's not even categories of speech. Maybe you want to open a PT department or an OT department or add audiology. So by diversifying and having multiple revenue streams, it's likely that you will increase the cash flow and revenues coming into the business. A third value driver to consider is, do you have business systems in place for sustainable cash flow? Do you have these systems documented? Are they repeatable processes? Does every client who come into your clinic have the same customer experience? Will they be greeted by the same person? Will they be billed by the same person? Whether they see therapist A or therapist B, will the experience be the same? 
Do you have these standard procedures in place? Really important so that way every client experiences the same feelings every time they come to your practice. Another value driver to think about is do you have a motivated management team? Again, by increasing the transferable value means you will be stepping out of the business or more of the day-to-day operations. By you stepping out, you're going to need a management team to step in and really carry out the day-to-day operations of the practice. So do you have incentive plans in place to keep your management team motivated? Do they have ownership in the business? Do you offer any type of employee stock purchase plan or bonus plan? Another important value driver, having effective financial controls. So again, you might be the CFO of your private practice as well, but do you use an accounting software? If somebody walked into your clinic tomorrow and said, Mrs. Private Practice Owner, I'm interested in purchasing this practice today. Can you provide me with the last five years of your financial statements and documents for me to assess your business? Again, that's unlikely to happen, but in the event that they do, you want to have that information ready at a fingertip. Do you know all of the financial information from your practice within the last few years? Do you have it ready at hand? Knowing that and having effective financial controls is really a great way for a prospective buyer to know that you have all of your information at hand and ready to access. So another way to maximize and protect business value is minimizing business risk. So I mentioned earlier about having a motivated management team. One of the ways to minimize risk is to make sure that you keep your employees, especially your key and most important employees, happy and prevent them from leaving. Because there have been numerous studies by Harvard Business School, other leading institutions that state turnover is one of the most costly expenses to a business. And so do you want to keep your leadership team in place instead of having a lot of churn, a lot of turnover amongst therapists, clinical director, et cetera? So do you have incentive plans in place to keep them happy, to give them perhaps ownership of the business or an annual bonus based on performance of the business? Another way to minimize risk to the business is making sure you have certain types of insurance to prevent loss. So for instance, if you have a breach of confidential information, do you have cybersecurity insurance? In today's world with technology, what it is, there are numerous ways in which people can try and access or hack into your information, especially working in the field of speech pathology, you have access to a lot of personal identifiable information or PII, and that is really important information to protect. So examples of PII include social security numbers, addresses, phone numbers, dates of birth. If someone were to hack into your EMR software and demand a malware ransom request for $20,000, $30,000, $50,000, what would you do? How would you be able to access your information? So important to know that cyber liability, something that's very prevalent in today's business economy, something you want to protect against the loss of. Similarly, you want to prevent and protect the business against the death, disability of both yourself and co-owners, as well as key employees. Do you have the proper insurances on key people within your business? So Oftentimes when we talk about disability, it doesn't have to be a crippling, debilitating ailment that causes someone the inability to show up to work. Perhaps if it's something such as carpal tunnel syndrome 
or the loss of fine motor skills. We all know that as speech pathologists, you need most likely, especially if you're working with the pediatric population, that you're going to be using your hands, you're going to be on your knees, you're going to be walking around, you're going to be doing all sorts of things with children. And so if you don't have those fine motor skills, you most likely can't carry out the day-to-day responsibilities of your occupation. And if that's the case, there are ways to ensure or protect against those risks. So one thing, for instance, would be disability insurance. Do you provide your employees with that ability? Do you have insurance on them in which if your lead therapist is, for whatever reason, unable to perform the duties of her job, would you have the resources to bring in a new lead therapist or hire someone else at least temporarily until she's able to resume her day-to-day operations. So minimizing business risk, really important. And a third way to maximize and protect business value is to reduce or eliminate taxes. And so a disclaimer that you hear at the end of every podcast, I will chime in here and say, reminder, I'm not an accountant or attorney, so do not take this as legal advice please consult with your accounting professional as part of your professional team that we mentioned earlier, your legal advisors, your tax advisors, and everyone's individual situation is different. So one thing that I mentioned earlier, the business entity choice that you choose, are you filing as a C corporation or an S corporation or an LLC? Each has their advantages and disadvantages. And so determining what to do and how to maximize your free cash flow from the business, a lot of those decisions correspond directly to the business entity choice that you have. Another way when selling a business, and a really important reason that I did not mention earlier about why you need to have an accurate business valuation of your business, is there's a strategy involved during a transfer of a business to an insider employee. Maybe it's your child, maybe it's your lead therapist. You're allowed to use something called discounted valuation And as long as you use the lowest defensible value of the business, you might be able to reduce the amount of tax that's involved in the transaction. And so by doing that, you will hopefully net the same amount, but pay less in tax. And so that might help a buyer purchase the business because it requires less gross cash flow in order to purchase the business from you if you're purchasing it for the lowest defensible value. Well, you might be wondering, well, what does that have to do with knowing what the accurate valuation of the business is? And so In order to determine that, anytime you process the transaction, the IRS will want to know how did you come up with the value of the business. So if I want to sell my private practice to my daughter, I can't just sell it to her for $1 because the government, Uncle Sam, always wants his fair share of the transaction amount. And with that being the case, they will never say that my business is worth $1. If it's worth $1, most likely I will no longer be in business. So what is a justifiable amount for my business? How can I calculate that? And by doing that, it's important to know you can take advantage of some of these tax reduction strategies by having accurate business value. A third way to eliminate or reduce taxes also are reducing your state income tax. So as you prepare to sell your business and perhaps enter retirement, there are nine states in America that do not tax state income. So maybe you want to transition or you're thinking about going to a different state as part of the transaction. You can stretch your retirement dollars a lot further if you don't have to pay state income tax on the capital gains or distributions or income generated in retirement. So things to consider, maybe you've thought about moving to a warmer climate. A lot of these states in the South have 
this no state income tax. So once you've figured out some of these strategies for maximizing and protecting business value, steps four and five are to determine who you want to sell the business to. And so as I mentioned earlier, there are two major groups of employees, which we can classify into two exit paths. The first is selling to an insider or someone whom you already know. So again, that could be transferring the company to your family or family member, selling the practice to one or more key employees like your clinical directors or lead therapist. There is a strategy called an employee stock ownership plan or an ESOP in which you sell the practice to essentially your company and all your employees. I would caution and say that that strategy would most likely work in a situation in which you have dozens, if not hundreds of employees. It's a it's an appropriate situation for some businesses. Again, it's important to know what the financials are. And again, every individual's situation is unique, but know that that is a strategy as well. Or you might choose to retain ownership in a passive manner. Maybe you want to stay on part-time. Maybe you truly don't want to retire and you want to stay in the practice for two days a week and you'll retain 40, 50% ownership or 49% maybe so you give majority ownership to someone else. So again, those all roll up into the first exit path of selling to an insider. The second exit path is selling to an outsider or someone who you don't know. As I mentioned, that's selling to an outside third party. Maybe it's another clinician, a private equity group. If your clinic is, again, on the larger side, a possibility for exiting is engaging in an initial public offering or an IPO. It is possible, depending on the size of your company, to take it public. And I think it's important here to note that if you don't decide to set up a transaction to an insider or a third party, by default, you'll pick the third exit path, which is liquidation. And essentially, that's holding your business until you pass away or can no longer operate the business. And some business owners choose to do that. They feel that they won't receive fair market value for their business. And so they'll continue working, earning an income maybe putting money away into a retirement plan or other investment strategies. And then one day they will just decide to close the doors to their clinic. And that's advisable as well. But it's important to know that under liquidation, especially in such a service intense business, it's unlikely you'll generate much from the liquidation of your practice. So for comparison's sake, if I owned a construction company, I could liquidate my equipment, my materials, other physical assets, and be able to generate money for those. You might have some equipment in the office, you might have some devices, you might have some technology and some computers, but it's unlikely that you'll be able to generate a lot from the sale of those. So just keep that in mind and that you can liquidate the business if you need to, but often that's a last resort and you will not receive fair value for that. So what are some factors to determine? Should I sell to an insider or a third party or maybe hold until liquidation? So there are six main variables that you should consider prior to an exit, and certain strategies are more favorable than others depending on what's important to you. Remember going back to your objectives as the owner and thinking about some of those qualitative, what do I want my practice to look like without me, and also some of the quantitative. Certain buyers might pay me a premium for my business versus others. So the first variable to consider is financial stability. So structuring the deal and structuring the sale is an important consideration for you to think about. So certain types of buyers, for instance, a private equity group might come in 
and they might value your practice, let's say at a million dollars, and they might go through and do their due diligence, and they could write you a check right there, 100% cash for $1 million and buy you directly out of the business. You got your fair market value. You got what your practice is worth. The deal closed very quickly. Uh, A lot of people want that. They want the cash up front. Whereas if you're going to sell to an insider, that transaction might take a lot longer. Think about your lead therapist who might be 10, 20, 30 years your junior, and they might not have the capital requirements to write you a check or the collateral to go to a bank and get a note to purchase the business from you. So the financial stability of getting cash up front or having to do an earnout over many years is something to consider. Secondly, the time factor. Again, I mentioned with a third-party transaction, they can close very quickly. The insiders can take much longer. But it's also to think about the time margin. Maybe you're not ready to leave your business. Maybe you want to stay in the business for another five years or 10 years or do this as a multi-year strategy. So if that's the case, the insider transaction might make more sense. You might be able to stay on. You'll retain ownership for a longer period of time. Maybe you're not ready to retire today, but you want to 10 years from now. So there's no reason why you can't start an exit plan to execute 10 years from now and have the deal close finally in 10 years. But whereas if you're looking at a third-party transaction, they might give you a hard deadline. They might say, Mrs. Private Practice Owner, we're going to purchase this. This deal is going to close January 1st. On January 1st, you're out of the business. No more income from that. No more relationship with your employees. You must leave. And so sometimes they'll force your exit depending on the transaction amount. So another variable to consider are the tax consequences. So remember, in retirement, you're going to want to generate the same net after tax cash flow. And the reason why we say net after tax is because during the transaction of and sale of your practice, you might have a fair market value of a million dollars and somebody might be willing to write you a million dollar check, but you have to consider all the costs that go into the transaction. Do you have to pay transactional costs if you worked with perhaps a business broker or someone to list the business? Do you have to pay ordinary income tax? Do you have to pay capital gains tax? At the end of the day, you might end up netting, let's say, 40% or $400,000 on a million-dollar transaction. Do you want to straddle and stagger those taxes over multi-years? So knowing how to produce the largest net after-tax outcome, you might sell a business again, with a gross amount for a million dollars and net 400000 or you might have a gross sale of 750000 and net 500000 because of the tax impact. So you want to make sure that you're accounting for the taxes and depending on whether it's an insider transaction or a third party can determine what's the best strategy for that. Next, we'll talk about value-based goals. We talked a little earlier about what do you want your business to look like without you? Is it important for you to carry out the legacy and culture of your business? An insider is most likely to carry that out. They might keep your name on the wall if that's important to you. Perhaps you've spent 10, 20 years in the community building this continuity and helping all of these people within the community, and it's important for you to keep that legacy on the wall. Well, you'll have a lot more ability to speak to the clinical director as part of the transaction to keep the name on the wall versus a third party who might want to rebrand as a national entity, come up with their own name. Similarly, do you want all of your people to remain employed? Really important that you consider a third party might come in, they might look to reduce expenses and cut salaries. 
They might want to bring in their own clinical directors, their own consultants to improve business performance. If you're selling to the insider, they might keep your entire staff as is because they've grown used to working with these people over their their working tenure. So once you've determined whether you want to start the business transaction and sale and exit plan with a third party or insider, the final two steps have to deal with developing contingency plans for your business and for your family. And so step six is thinking about what would happen to your business and developing a continuity plan. So essentially what a business continuity plan is preserving and protecting your business in the short and long term should its most important component, you or your key employees, either pass away or become incapable of continuing with the company because of an incapacitation or inability to work. And so there's three main documents that every private practice owner should have to develop the contingency plan. The first is something called a buy-sell agreement. And a buy-sell agreement is a legal contract that obligates surviving owners of a company to buy out the interest of the other owner and give money to their family of the owner who dies or becomes disabled. So essentially a buy-sell agreement would, if you have private practice owner A and private practice owner B, if private practice, and there are 50-50 owners in the business, private practice owner B dies and private practice owner A would be responsible for buying out their 50% equity of private practice owner B. So that's what a buy-sell agreement does. It obligates private practice owner A to do that but is there funding? Are there mechanisms to actually afford private practice owner A to purchase that equity from the other private practice owner's family? And so you can do that through certain types of financial products like life insurance, disability insurance, but most importantly, that you have the document in place and that it is properly funded to carry out the execution in the unfortunate event that it does need to be triggered. The second major type of document to consider is something called a stay bonus plan. And what a stay bonus plan does is it provides bonuses somewhere between 12 to 24 months for employees who remain with the company during its transition from your ownership to new ownership. So that might not be because of the death of a co-owner. It might be because you sold your business. And so again, someone who purchases your business is most likely buying it for your employees, your systems, the things that you've put in place to build such a profitable and excellent business. And so in order to make sure that the future owner gets their money's worth for buying your business, they're going to want your staff to stay in place. So a stay bonus plan is something that would, again, be rewarded to some employees. It doesn't have to be all employees, but some employees after, let's say, 24 months after the closing date of the transaction. So if I sell my business today, Two years from now, if my lead therapist stays with the practice, she'll get some type of bonus, whether it's monetary, maybe it's stock in the business, something, but she will be have the incentive to stay with and foresee the transaction of the business. The third document for business continuity is something called business continuity instructions. And what these are, are part of a written document communicating your wishes and what should be done with the business if for some reason you, the private practice owner, are no longer around. And so you can think about it sort of as just a leather binder with instructions for your spouse, your children, your employees, what to do, what resources are available, who are my trusted advisors, 
How should the business be disposed? Who will be the new owners? My most important vendors or customers? Just anything that you think someone would need to know about your business should be documented and available in a ready-to-access format. So just a list of instructions on what to do. And so lastly, that's talking about a contingency plan for your business, a contingency plan for your family. Again, making sure your wishes are carried out in the event that you are no longer around to carry them out. So again, I'm not an attorney and don't offer legal advice, but I would encourage everyone listening, private practice owner or employee, to have a few basic estate planning documents in place. So the first would be a last will and testament, which is essentially a basic legal document providing the directions on who will receive the assets you own. It specifies an executor and a guardian if you have minor children. Another important document is a living will or healthcare proxy. So this designates an individual to make healthcare decisions for you. And in the event of terminal illness or incapacitation, it specifies the medical care you want or don't want. And similarly, there's something called a durable power of attorney, which appoints an individual to make financial decisions in the event of your unavailability to do so. To conclude, as I mentioned, there's a 100% probability that every private practice owner will leave her business at some point. And so today's conversation was really to help guide you through a seven-step process to start thinking about that and making sure that you exit on your own terms and have your wishes carried out. So what I would encourage all of you as action items to do as a takeaway for today is spend some time thinking about the three universal goals that we talked about. Do you have a successor in mind for your business? Have you had a conversation with them about it? Let's say it's your lead therapist. Maybe take her to lunch and say, have you ever thought about ownership in the business? Do you want to open a private practice someday? Just do some fact finding and find out if there's a mutual interest. And again, the... Exit planning process can take 10, 15 years. You don't have to retire today just to exit your business. You can set this up over a multi-year or multi-decade time period. It's totally your discretion. So once you think about the successor, how much money do you need to generate from the sale of your business? Have you had a recent appraisal of your business? Do you know what a fair market value is for your business? Do you have the resources available to you to know what that number should be? And so if there is a gap between what the business is worth today and what you need it to be worth, the third thing to think about is when do you want to leave your practice? In an ideal world, if you needed to generate a million dollars from the sale of your practice today and a clinician on the other side of town walked into your doors and wrote you a check for a million dollars and said, I'm ready to take over this business today. Are you ready to leave tomorrow? Would you take the check? It produces the after-tax cash flow that you want, but are you ready to leave tomorrow? Do you want to leave in a few years? Are you not ready at all? Do you never want to leave? Similarly, if you do decide that you want to leave soon, have you given consideration to what you will do with your day-to-day? Again, you've been coming to the same clinic for years, decades even. What will you do on the day-to-day moving forward? So as you think about those three universal goals, the other thing I will encourage everyone to do is When was the last time you reviewed your contingency planning for your business and your family with your legal team? Oftentimes, people's situations change and maybe you had some documents drafted when you started the practice and that was 15 years ago. Or you and your spouse put together estate planning documents when you got married, but you got married 10 years ago. Maybe there have been new children. Maybe there's new grandchildren. 
are your wishes expressed in your legal documents? So I would challenge you to review those on your own with a legal team. And so thank you all for listening today. And I hope that this provided value to all of you. And I look forward to talking with you all again soon. You've been listening to SLP Money, hosted by Craig Goldslager. Want even more ideas on how to make smart financial decisions? Head on over to the Learning Center at utterlyfinancial.com, where you'll find more information for SLPs and private practice owners. While there, you can also schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with Craig. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which will help more people discover SLP money. Thanks so much for listening. Materials discussed is for general and informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investing advice. While the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations may vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Craig Goldslager is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. OSJ, 2 South Biscayne Boulevard, Suite 1740, Miami, Florida, 33131, 305-371-6333. Securities, products, and services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York, PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Arterly Financial is not affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Craig Goldslinger does not maintain specialized license or qualifications for the financial services provided to speech language pathologists and private practice owners professionals. California Insurance License Number OK78754 2020 93204 EXP 122.